Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, where we have our weekly discussion on biblical topics and subjects, uh, questions that we ask ourselves or get from the audience. And um, um, we believe that there is absolute truth. So as we discuss these things, we uh, refer to the Bible as our source. Um, I'm hesitating because we do have some technical changes going on today. Uh, I'll explain that in a minute. Stephen, you're there. Okay, good. Yep. Um, where did I leave? Okay, so everyone in, in the audience, we want you to participate in the discussion. So please ask your questions and your comments. Um, coming in through the app, you can use the Q&A box that's in the app. And by the way, there's a new feature with the uh, Zoom app. If you're in the Zoom audience or you're in the audience using the Zoom app, there's also that hand icon that you'll see probably near the top of the screen. Click that when you want to speak on the telephone. Well, it's not really the phone. You'll be speaking through your computer. But what that allows us to do is open up the microphone for you to ask a comment and have questions or discussions with us if you click the um, that hand icon. Oh, let's see. Where else do I want to say before I introduce it? Uh, I think that's about it. Um, joining us from, well, let's see, Stephen, you're not in, in Gettysburg today. Not, not today, Drew. Uh, we're joining you, Scott will be joining you shortly, uh, from the New Cumberland area, which is in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Okay. The, the, uh, and Noah, he's our uh, web engineer. I want to make sure Noah started the broadcast live i believe so i see it's been yeah, we're good uh, live on facebook we have viewers on all platforms so. fantastic thanks a lot and also uh, and drew i'm not sure if you changed your volume settings but i'm having a uh i'm having a little bit harder time hearing you than i was a minute ago in our pre-show so i don't know if you've changed any of your volume settings or not interesting no i haven't you uh, you sound just as loud to me as uh, if anything, Stephen, you sound quiet. It might be on your end then, Stephen. Okay. Well, I didn't change anything. So okay, yeah. Uh, sometimes Crazy. technology does that to us. All right. Momentarily though, Scott will be joining us, right? Yep. Scott's with you on set up as we speak. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, we had a couple of questions come in since last week. We left off. If, every, if those of you that were here last week, with our discussion on the origin of morality. And um, it was a very good uh, couple of minutes, and we had a lot of good questions. In fact, we had emails coming in about that, which we're going to then uh, unpack and talk about it more. But before we do, we also got another uh, request from a viewer. We're not sure where he was coming in on Facebook or the, or the app, but I don't have this question right handy. Uh, let's see. Uh, yes, I do. Just give me a second. I thought I had it. I know. I've got it here, Drew. You got it? Yes. Um, yeah. oh, I found it. Here we go. It says, I've been struggling mightily, uh, mightily with mental illness for the past few years. It's gotten so bad that suicidal thoughts happen all the time. Substance abuse took over for a while, and I know these are wrong. Biblically, but I, uh, these are wrong biblically, but I was wondering if the Bible says things about mental health struggles and suicide. I can't think of anything specifically. And so he's asking us, do we have any specific information about that? It's a very good topic. Um, uh, Stephen, you want to start that off? Did I lose Stephen? 
uh, Stephen, did you hear me? Uh-oh, we lost Stephen. We lost his audio, too. What about you, Scott? Unmute your... <laughs> we yeah, my apologies to Drew and to the audience. Uh, we were out of town today and got hit in a traffic jam, and that's why we're here at the last minute. Sorry about that. Try to avoid making that happen in the future. On this question... Uh, it's an important question. The Bible addresses so much of how we are to live, not always in the language and uh, every specific that people encounter today. And we can talk in a minute about some of the helpful passages. But one thing that's important to remember is this. Um, someone who is in a situation where they're having suicidal thoughts needs to get in touch with someone. Uh, we can try to provide some help from here and, and, and point to some things uh, uh, and, and biblical resources and such, but you need to talk to someone near you. Reach out to uh, a, a, a friend, uh, a brother, a sister, uh, reach out to family. Uh, if you don't have someone to be able to reach out uh, uh, to professionals, hotlines, do something to talk with someone. And, and one of the key things is to separate between your feelings and what you know. When we're feeling good, what do we know about suicide? What's that? Say that what again. What do we know about suicide? When we're feeling good and not being tempted, what are some things we know about su suicide? Oh, we, 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 don't, we think it's not right. It's wrong. Yeah, it's, it's wrong. It's been called a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And really, it's not a solution at all. Right, right. And so if we know this, if we know it's wrong, if we, if we know it's against God's will, if we know uh, it's in, if we know there, that there's no recourse from it, uh, it is a something you do in a temporary moment. Remember what you know, despite what you may be momentarily feeling. Mm -hmm. So many people let their feelings take over what they know. And you have to realize they're two different things. No matter how intense that feeling may be, sometimes we're elated. Sometimes we're depressed. Sometimes we're frightened. Sometimes we're mourning. There's lots of different things we can feel, but we have to remember the difference between what we feel and what we know. And use the no part to get in touch with someone and reach out and talk to someone uh, despite a current feeling that feels like, I don't want to talk and I just want out. So are there some scriptures? I recommended that uh, you start with looking at Proverbs and reading Proverbs, which yes. is advice from... Psalms could also be good. In the Psalms, so, so like Proverbs gives advice, father to son advice. Yes, uh, but I mean it's it's really neutral general. A woman could also get great uh, value out of the Proverbs. What else do you uh, recommend? Ah, Stephen, your voice is gone again. In fact, your your audio is muted, Stephen. There, there you go. go. How's that? Yeah, that's better. All right. Um, another thing that we can look at is just. In the scriptures, there's a contrast between Peter and Judas. Uh, Peter and Judas both did horrible things to Jesus and felt terribly about what they had done. Uh, Judas chose to end his life. And that's, of course, the worst reaction uh, to having bad feelings or guilt or whatever else is going on. Peter went out and wept bitterly 
and I'm sure was feeling terribly depressed and, and guilty over what he had done, but he chose to get back up. Be specific. What did Peter do? He, well, he went, mm-hmm. no, what did he do that made him feel guilty? He denied the Lord three times. And it, and then I think it says, and I don't have the scripture open here to it. Right now, but he actually cursed him. That's right. swore, swore that he didn't know him. Swore that he didn't know, right. Yeah. Yes. And so just looking at the contrast there, uh, Peter, of course, goes on, no matter how terrible he felt in that moment. I suppose if you asked Peter in that moment, if you would ever serve Christ again, or if his life would ever be the same, he would say, no, I'm just too bad. I'm too terrible. I've sworn that I never knew Jesus. And he turned and looked at me. You know, Jesus would never take me back. My, my life is just over, basically as a follower of Jesus, but it wasn't, it was far from over. However, he felt in that moment did not change the fact that he still had a future. He still had positive things that he could do and would do in the Lord's service. And that's one thing I think is helpful to see. Um, Judas chose to end everything and did not go on to do more productive things for the Lord. Peter, on the other hand, felt terrible but chose to get back up, to go back to the disciples, to go back to Jesus ultimately. And the Lord still used him and helped him get through that time in his life. He was forgiven. That's right. And I think we're probably going to spend some more time on some of this in a future program. But let's also just mention this, a great, great text for dealing with how to think and, and getting control of our thoughts is the book of Philippians. Yes. Uh, I kind of call it the mental health book of the new Testament. It's written by someone whose external circumstances are terrible. He's been arrested for a crime. He didn't commit. He's been held in prison by a governor that was wanting a bribe. He's been sent to Rome. He's appealed and been sent to Rome, but on the trip, there was a terrible storm and, and, you know, could have looked like everybody would have died, but everybody survives. And then you, you have, uh, he's in Rome knowing that he may be executed. And he's got people stabbing him in the back. He, he, and he doesn't have a wife to console him. He doesn't have children that will carry on after him. He's, he's in a lot of situations that look really desperate. But what, what's one of the key words that you see over and over in the book of Philippians? Rejoice. Yeah. Yeah, and in chapter 4, he says where, where he puts his joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, and again, I say rejoice. Everything else that we take joy in, we can lose. Uh, people out there in the audience, if you're in good health, you, you enjoy your good health. I got news for you. You're going to lose it. <laughs> you know, 100 years from now, you're not going to be in good health. Uh, it's, uh, your body is going to be decaying and in the grave. Um, if, if you, if you're married, one of you is going to exit that marriage, a widow or, or a widower in, in a good and strong and loving marriage. It's heartbreaking. If, uh, all sorts of things that we can take joy in, we can lose, but what could they not take away from Paul? His joy in the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And so he put his joy there and there. And we can talk at another time about some more of the powerful lessons from uh, Philippians, particularly in Philippians uh, 2 and chapter 4 and some different places. Yeah, I think it'd be good if we took a whole show, uh, maybe in the not too distant future, and talk about some principles for 
uh, mental health, uh, maybe some questions about mental illness. I know that's a question on a lot of people's minds right now. Sounds good. There's a, there's one comment on, on this before we get to the next topic um, from one of our viewers. It says the best way to fight against depression and suicide is hope. Depression limits your ability to hope and hope is needed for per- perseverance. Romans 8, 23, 25. If you nourish a hope constantly, not easy while depressed, you can't overcome depression. So, so audience, send in your comments, your questions on this topic or on any topic. And as we get into the next topic, uh, please send in your comments, questions, and um, thoughts. So last week, is that enough on this one, fellas, for now? Yeah, because we're going to follow up on it later, so I think I think that'll be good. To, uh, we yeah, we can spend a lot more time on it then. Okay, thanks. So we have uh, the open question that we've been asking for the last few weeks is, uh, how do you, uh, to, to, uh, from the atheist point of view, how can you explain morality? Where does it come from and its origin? And we've got a couple of good comments and questions, but we also got a good email, a couple of emails coming in from different people. And uh, Scott, I'm going to let you take over from there because I think you had some comments based on one of the emails that came in. Yes, uh, we had a gentleman uh, respond and respond very politely and, and uh, in a good manner, uh, responding to this question from an atheist point of view. He's an atheist, and I don't have the email pulled up as I was just coming to the door. If anybody else has I've got, got it, here. let's go ahead and read his response, and then we'll discuss it some. Sounds good. So his response reads as follows. Um, My friend directed me to your live video where you wanted input from an atheist about where morality comes from. As an atheist myself, I wanted to answer your question as best as I can. In terms of personal morality, I think it basically derives from empathy that we all possess as a species. When we hear a baby cry, we all react emotionally in one way or another, but our first instinct is usually to find a way to make the crying stop. If we witness someone experience physical pain, stubbing their toe, banging their head on a crossbeam, etc., we tend to wince in pain ourselves because we know from experience how painful those situations can be. All of those Sarah McClayhan commercials with the sad-looking puppies and kittens are designed to tug at our heartstrings, playing off our empathy in order to get us to take action. We all have the capacity to place ourselves in other people's shoes and have a basic understanding of the pain and suffering they can endure And in turn, we don't wish to cause them any pain and suffering because we know how bad it makes us feel. Even though empathy started off as an evolutionary tool for our survival, we've remolded it into a broader sense of what is right and wrong. In terms of social or societal morality, I believe it's a necessary byproduct of having a functional society that thrives off of human flourishing and reduces human suffering to the best of its ability. If murder was justifiable under any circumstances, how could we go to work, start a family, or even step outside without reasonably fearing for our lives? We have to lay down a a standard of behavior that allows us to go to work and produce for the benefit of us all, start a family to ensure future generations, and go to the park or marketplace in order for us to provide provide for our families and have joyful experiences with them without the threat of death or injury. Of course, every society develops slightly differently and therefore has a slightly different standard of societal morality. But I'm not aware of any societies or cultures that has zero moral standards. I hope this response helps out. If you have any further questions, I'll be more than happy to answer them. I could go into a lot more detail and nuance on this topic if needed, but that's my general overview of morality. 
Okay, now, uh, and then I wrote the correspondent back, and I'm going to go over some of the points that I mentioned and then look at his response some. But notice this phrase here, and be thinking about it. He said, even though empathy started out as an evolutionary tool for our survival, we've remodeled it into a broader sense of what is right and wrong. Uh, so that was original statement there. And then I had, I had written back and thanked him for replying and for the tone in which he did reply. And I pointed out some particular areas of agreement. Uh, empathy is a quite common thing. If you look at the newspaper, I think we can all agree that it's not common as, it's as common as it should be, but it is also very common. Uh, we've all seen all sorts of people uh, have compassion on other people. And you can also see animals that are kind to each other, which is a good thing. And, of course, in agreement, as a society, we are all in a better and safer place when murder, et cetera, is deemed unacceptable. But then I pose these questions. First off, if empathy started off as an evolutionary tool for our survival. So what I wrote was this. While empathy certainly is common, Darwin and Wallace's natural selection, survival of the fittest. Wallace had used the phrase survival of the fittest. Darwin used the phrase natural selection was not, as you know, about survival necessarily, necessarily of the nice or the pretty or intelligent. Witness, for example, the very fit to survive cockroach. A cockroach is very fit to survive. Why? It lives long enough and survives well enough to reproduce, lay a lot of eggs and reproduce its genes. That's what survival of the fittest is about. A famous Harvard uh, professor years ago pointed this out, that it's not about what we would look at as most attractive or appealing. It's about what is the most fit at reproducing its genes. That's what survival of the fittest is about. Now, given that, survival of the fittest was specifically about the most successful at surviving to reproduce and pass on one's genes. Cockroach does a good job here. Granted, being nice to your own offspring feeding them when they are hungry instead of eating them because you're hungry. Uh, that's clearly not only the right thing to do, but advantageous to the continuation of your genes. But what would select being kind to those who aren't your descendants or those of another species altogether, which empathy sometimes includes? In other words, why risk my genes to save someone else from a burning building? or a roaring sea, or a hungry lion? What's going to most give me the best chance to survive and pass on my genes? You're stuck in that burning building? What? You run out. Survival of the fittest. Yeah, yeah. Here comes the lion, and I'm a little bit faster than you. You know, it, it's... It, but that's a natural occurrence. What you're yeah. talking about here is something... Well, maybe it is natural from that side a worldview. But so if you were to say, well, I'm not going to run out and preserve my genes, but I'm going to help someone else and try to save as many other people in that building as possible. Right. How, how would evolution select for that? Now do recall that he said he began, thought it began as an evolutionary tool. Um, so there's my question. Why risk my genes to save someone else from a building burning, a roaring sea, or a hungry lion. So um, here's what uh, his response. He says, hi, Scott. I'll do my best to answer each of the questions as you pose. 
Number one, it seems to be a common occurrence for theists to turn to survival of the fittest when they try to offer an atheist worldview of morality not based on God or scripture. But I think this argument is completely inaccurate and flawed, he says. When Darwin used that phrase in Origin of Species work, he was not describing a natural process for how species pass on their genes from one generation to the next. Uh, actually, that was much about what it is. Uh, but what, let's. Well, this what he said. He was describing a natural process. Oh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Yeah, I looked at it wrong here, and it kind of surprised me. It was a few days since I read that. Yes, that is correct. Thank you for catching that, Stephen. He, when Darwin said that, he was describing a natural process for how species pass on their genes from one generation to the next. Exactly. So, thank you for catching that, Stephen. Not sure. Oh. Here's where I saw the knot. I'm a little bit of difference from the screen. And there's a all caps knot in the second, second sentence. He was not using the phrase to describe a standard of ethical behavior. Although a handful of people misinterpreted Darwin's work to propagate their own advancement of social Darwinism and eugenics. Uh, for instance, Darwin's cousin, uh, who invented the term eugenics and which led to the Nazi Holocaust. Uh, Darwin himself never did so. A study of the evolutionary biology is in no way a foundation for prescribing human ethical behavior. Um, so, yeah, you read Origin of Species, and I don't remember reading in there where he's talking about ethics. But if it came from an, from, if it, if we evolved it, the mechanism for evolution that Darwin proposed is natural selection, survival of the fittest. So I'm going to throw up and share a screen here in a minute uh, about that topic, unless you guys have something to say first. No, I'm good. Stephen? No, I think that that uh, good questions being raised. I didn't know if you wanted to read the second paragraph of his response before. Well, I thought we'd do maybe one question at a time. Sure. So dealing with this first one about natural selection stuff. So in agreement with our correspondent that, Darwin's book is not about, hey, where did ethics come from? His book is about um, the preservation of favored races, origin of the species, subtitle, have to do with uh, uh, favored races. Uh, and he's meaning there both among animals, plants, people, etc. I would take it. Uh, so here's, here's just a little bit about Darwin's book, uh, just so that we can kind of all get this clearly in our mind what he was saying. So Origin of the Species by Charles Darwin, 1859. And can everybody see that on the screen? Yeah, yeah there it is. All right. So the opening chapters, here it is. Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection, Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life by Charles Darwin. Let me skip this part and get to this part right here. Chapters one through four really lay the groundwork, and it's this variation under domestication, variation under nature, struggle for existence, natural selection. What does he mean by variation under domestication? When you have a person kind of controlling or breeding a particular animal, and so they can select for the traits that they're wanting to preserve or develop. Yeah. Instead of natural selection going on in the jungle, it's the farmer is doing the selection or the breeder is doing the selection. So, for instance, the dachshund was bred to be a short-legged dog. Um, and so you can, look at, you can look at pigs, 
uh, domesticated pigs would have, you know, have genetic relation to, of course, wild pigs. But if chickens, uh, Jeff's wife Libby has like some old line chickens and they can fly a lot better than our chickens. They don't have as big breast muscles. You know, it's a smaller bird and that's where chickens come from. But we bred chickens and kept selecting, you know, till we got more and more breast meat. Now they don't fly too well. Uh, but so in natural selection, in, in artificial selection, farmers and breeders picked out, hey, we want more of this in this flower. We want more of this, this in this plant. We want less thorns on that raspberry bush. Would that, would that be something under the category of the term that we've heard called microevolution? Yes, yes, because a breeder, a breeder can, uh, like for instance, if you wanted to get the opposite of a Dalmatian, if you wanted to get black dogs with small white spots, you think you could do that? Yeah. What would you start with? Mostly black dogs that had a little bit of white. And then you'd pick other dogs like that and you'd keep breeding them together. And when you look at the pups, which ones are you not going to select for your breeding program? The ones that don't have what you're looking for. And you're going to keep breeding what you've got till you kind of get what you want. Could you, could a dog breeder take their dogs and breed turtles from them? No. Or birds. Right. Because that's macroevolution. You don't have the genetic material there to deal with. So he starts off with pointing out something, pigeons, sheep, et cetera, et cetera. You can do this. We can have variation under domestication. Chapter two, he pointed out, when you look out at wildlife, is there variation in nature? Yeah. Yeah, I was in California recently, and I noticed the squirrels in that area looked different than our squirrels. They had a little bit of a pattern in the hair on their back. You know, it was a squirrel, but he looked a little bit different. There's a number of different species of, and I would think subspecies would actually be a better terminology for it, of different rattlesnakes in California. So we, we look, oh, well, there's a little bit, you know, this beetle looks like this more in this part of the country, that more. There's variation in nature. Chapter three, struggle for existence. He had read uh, Malthus on population who had pointed out that if Every critter in every plant, if all of their seeds and offspring survived, like if every, every larvae made by a fly survived into an, more flies that made more larvae, if they all survived and nobody ever got swatted with a fly swatter, how thick would the air be with flies? If, if, yeah, if every elephant, every dandelion, every... You know, if every organism, all of its attempts at reproduction survived, we'd be overflown with lions and tigers and bears and flies, oh my. And so there's a struggle for existence where there's not enough space, resources, food for everybody to survive. So if a fish lays a bunch of eggs, are they all going to reach maturity? No. Here comes a smallmouth bass, eats some of those minutes. Those guys aren't going to reproduce. So if these, if these little fish were just a hair quicker than those fish, then the lower end of the gene pool is the idea keeps getting eliminated. And so the lower end of the gene pool keeps getting eliminated, which means who's going to survive? The strongest. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the faster fish, 
the, the one with better eyesight, uh, the better flying bird, et cetera, is going to survive. And so nature selects which is going to be uh, better to survive. So that's Darwin's idea. Now, does that explain everything? Well, no, it doesn't explain everything. Uh, for instance, in Southeast Asia, is there something in the air that means red hair people can't survive? No. Time and chance and genetic drift you know, is, is just a lot of it, but there's certainly some truth in natural selection. Um, you look at, uh, uh, well, animals in different areas. A polar bear uh, is a lot more fit to be white in what region? The northern North Pole? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you have a lighter colored bear in the south, he might not, he, and I believe he's designed that way, but also... If you go through, if, if you had, um, let me use a different example. Um, well, I don't want to get into people right now. But point being, uh, well, pe people that have located around the equator, do they tend to have lighter skin or darker skin? Darker skin. People that live in the northern areas of Russia, Asia, and uh, uh, Scandinavia tend to have lighter skin or darker skin. Lighter skin. Yeah. Now, one way you could foolishly say, oh, they've had more sunlight down here and it's a suntan. No, it's not. It has to do with melanoma uh, in, in the skin. And if you'd had people of Nordic descent, if Vikings went and tried to live for a long time without modern conveniences around the equator, they wouldn't have survived as well because they don't do as well in the sun. Uh, and so natural selection plays a role. But to say that uh, where did ethics come from, we do come back to natural selection is talking about selecting the thing that's best fit to pass on its genes. And it requires that my genes are going to be selected on average better if they're a little bit better than your genes, right? Or somebody else's genes. And if you get, if you're slower and you get eaten too bad for you. So where do the ethics come from? Right. So it seems like that's the fundamental question is we can generally see where that principle comes in, but when we're looking at humanity today, we've got morals, there are ethics that exist. Yeah. They are different in different cultures, but at some point it seems like that had to develop at some point where, and then the question is where did that come from? If we are only here by natural processes and that's the only input that's happening, it seems like, and I don't want to misrepresent the atheist point of view here, but because he's saying it started as an evolutionary tool and then we developed it is what he's saying. Right. So where, but you're, but what you're saying, Scott, is that it wouldn't make sense for evolution to start. Favoring if we, are, if we are, if we are a chance combination of chemicals, then why would nature have selected for advancement? those which would behave unselfishly and to their disadvantage. 
Let me say something else about natural selection before we move that and talk more about ethics. Um, I think we would all agree that if a bird has lays six eggs and four of the birds are good at flying and two of them are not, which, which birds are more likely to survive? The ones that are good at flying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a place for natural selection. But here's one of the things that Darwin's theory doesn't do. Survival of the fittest doesn't explain the arrival of the fittest. What do you mean by that? Well, for instance, where did, where did life come from in the first place? Uh, the, the fish with better eyesight. Where did eyesight come from in the first place? Uh, the, the turtle with a, a thicker shell. Where did his shell come from in the first place? Uh, and really, there, there have been scientists that looked at this and realized that um, Darwin's natural selection works on a microevolutionary scale, but it doesn't really explain macro things. And especially, it doesn't explain where life came from. But that's not really our topic for today. I just want to remind us of that. Let's come back to ethics. If it didn't come from natural selection, where did it come from? And if it just came from us, who makes my system of morals better than your system of morals? And if my system of morals violates your system of morals, who gets to say what's right or not? Because Darwin's cousin also, you know, uh, the one that came up with the word eugenics, he did take this idea, his cousin's idea, in that direction. And, and Darwin himself, by the way, was a racist. Um, uh, and and there's, implica- been, there's been terrible implications in this world and in society based on this idea. Because it really, it can at times. And, and again, I know that there are people who believe these ideas who don't take them to these extremes. And I want to acknowledge that. I don't think that... Uh, Oh, absolutely. These ideas always lead that. The connection becomes a slippery slope argument. But the problem arises when you you do not have an objective standard of morality, which natural selection cannot provide an objective standard. It can just provide, even if it gets to the point of empathy or something like that, well, which culture has the best morality or whatever? There's no objective standard. Um, if a culture or a society accepts something, well, suddenly that becomes the standard. And then, well, what if the people in power decide or enforce something, you know, uh, and they sway different people? Um, it, it dissolves really into a power struggle where, where who can either influence the most people to think the way that they think uh, or who can just gain the most power to manually enforce uh their system of morality which of course that it, it it all comes back to those questions of who gets to draw the line who gets to decide i think your genes are inferior and so we're going to take action on that right um Drew. and that's where it gets scary go ahead Drew. yeah you you used the term there that uh sparked uh, raised a, a, a flag on my ear you called it objective moral standard I want to ask uh, an atheist, uh, is there such thing as a real, objective, moral wrong? 
is there, let's see if I can phrase it right again, is there such thing as a real, objective, moral wrong? That doesn't vary from this culture to that culture. Yeah, in, in other words, objective, outside of each culture, outside of each human being. And first glance, some people may say, well, no, there really isn't. But there has been an established objective moral wrong. Yeah, I've asked a number of agnostics this question. Um, I asked an agnostic this question the other day, and I said, is morality, you know, above and beyond our culture? There's just things that are wrong, and it's above and beyond our culture. Or is it cultural and we make our own truth? And he said, yeah, it's cultural, we make our own truth. And then I said, suppose a given culture, in that culture, say it's an island out somewhere in the Pacific, in their culture, they exterminate the elderly, they sexually abuse their children, you know, they're pedophiles, and they use child pornography. That's their culture. Is it right or wrong? And he said, in that case, it would be wrong. Uh, one time a lady who had also said, oh, it's all relative and cultural. When I asked her that question, she said, that would be wrong, but I don't know why. Which is very interesting. Well, let, let me take my question further. Because the, the whole globe did make a decision that there was a real objective moral wrong committed when murdering 6 million Jewish men, women, and children. Yeah. The Nazis did that, and they were put on trial, and they were found guilty. What law or rule were they found guilty of? Was it the law of Germany? No. Was it the law of the United States? No. It, in fact, in those documents, and I tried to find some before the show, I couldn't, but in those documents, we understand there is that statement where we are appealing to a higher standard. There you go. Well, okay. Then everyone accepts the fact Relative thinking people would say, yeah, there is an objective moral wrong because all of us would think that was wrong. Yeah. Well, if there's an objective moral wrong, then doesn't that mean I have to realize there's an objective moral right? Ah, there you go. Let's get, this kind of brings us to question two here. I, I asked our correspondent friend a hypothetical question. Um, Given that our empathy tends to extend more to our own and to those species we don't eat, we like to help out kittens out of trees, for example, but most of us are not too empathetic to abstain from a hamburger or a chicken sandwich, raises an interesting question. So I ask him these questions. In your personal view, is it wrong to eat a hamburger, knowing a, that a different species produces tasty beef, and we tend to farm them, fatten them up, butcher them, eat them? Is that wrong? And then part two of the question in your personal view, do you suppose there's life on other planets? And if there is, what if members from a more advanced species came to Earth, decided they liked the taste of us, corralled us, ate us for lunch? What would be your view of that? As they're rounding up your family, branding them, and putting them in the cattle chute, uh, is what they're doing okay? Or is that just as justifiable as you're eating a hamburger. Uh, and here's a, his answer. He said, in my personal view, I'm perfectly fine with eating hamburgers. 
Human beings are not the only species of super predators. Uh, they eat meat from other animals. If someone else has a moral dilemma about eating meat, I fully respect their wishes, but I'm okay with it. Yes, I think it's very likely life exists on other planets. And then he says, in answer to what if they came and started corralling your family and eating them, he said, no, it would definitely not be okay if aliens tried to eat me or my family. I get, what you're, I get where you're coming from. I really do. But I think the difference between us and livestock is our intelligence and our ability as a species to be self-aware. In other words, we can think abstractly about concepts outside of our natural environment and use what we learn to gain a cosmic perspective of our place in the universe. I believe that because these are unique traits we possess, it gives us moral agency and natural lights that other species do not possess. And he says, I would probably make exception for certain species of dolphins, whales, and elephants that I believe share some aspects of intelligence. Uh, real quickly here, we're starting to run short on time, but I, I'd like Can I play to play devil's advocate with that response quickly. Sure. Then, but what would that would an alien come in here and eating humans? Yeah, would be wrong from our point of view. But would it be wrong from the alien's point of view? If everything's relative, you know, why can't it look right to him? Yeah. And if they have a spaceship capable of flying from another solar system here, they're obviously more advanced than us. And we may sit here and say, hey, hey, look at our intelligence. But if they're looking at us saying, you can't even get past your own moon, you know, it's like. Uh, uh, and you look very good you to eat. You can't, you can't get past your solar system. You know, what are you? Here, you're, 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 you're lunch. Um, even other types of animals realize, I remember one time, uh, there's a self-awareness to a certain extent. Uh, I'd set a rat trap for a rat, went back to check it. It was gone. He was in the rat trap and he took the trap with him. I was searching around in the basement. And when I moved the bucket that he was behind, he knew he was found and he was screaming. He was quiet until I moved that bucket. And trapped in that rat trap, he was <laughs> screaming and screaming and pop, and, uh, and he was done. Uh, but he had enough self-awareness to know he was in trouble. Uh, does, does he have the same level of intelligence with a dolphin? No. But we don't have the same level uh, of advancement per se as, as what could hypothetically be perceived here, as he's saying, as a species from another planet. So it gets you end up kind of with a might makes right mentality to a certain extent. And on a lower level, that's what Hitler was doing. He decided some other races of people were not, didn't need to be here. And he felt that they were superior. Now where you put that line, um, Darwin to just to illustrate Darwin's racism, uh, Darwin, uh, I, I hate saying this because it is a racist, uh, but in, in another one of his books, he talks about that he believes in the future, we will get farther and farther advanced above the apes so that the gap will be bigger than it is now. And he picked out one race of one type of ape and one type of human being as that, you know, there'll be a bigger gap instead of the close is as close as those two are was the idea. It's horrible. I never knew that one. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, now he, he was recognizing that there was a gap, but he was seeing it. He would select this type of human is farther down toward the, this type of ape was more advanced than the other apes and stuff. And he's saying in the future it will be more like this. Wow. Well, well, we had a lot, of, uh, a lot more we can talk about this, and this might be something we want to continue again in the future. We want more people to give us more questions. We, we didn't really answer all of this, uh, probably didn't solve and to a happy solution to everyone's in mind. But yeah, Stephen? I'm going to say we've had several comments and questions kind of come in. Some of them are on some other subjects, and I want to thank everybody for their comments and questions today. Uh, some of them have been kind of hard to pull in. Uh, to our particular discussion today, but I'm going to try to get to, to those or acknowledge those as many of those as we can uh, in future programs. So I'm sorry that we didn't do too much interaction today, uh, but we're going to try to, to get to as many of those as we can. But thank you for, for interacting with us. And let's wrap up with this thought. Just like uh, Darwinian uh, origin species does not solve the problem of morals, it does not solve the problem of how we got here, how life got here in the first place. The existence of life points to uh, life. The, nothing comes from nothing. So if there'd ever been nothing, what would be here today? Nothing. Nothing. Life comes from life. So if there'd never been life, what would be here today? No life. No life. And intelligent design comes from an intelligent designer. So life points back to a creator, and it is to that creator that we have moral obligation. Good point. To and before that creator that we have moral obligation. Thank you very much for uh, the individual that sent us an email. I hope he continues to dot yes, the dialogue you. and uh, appreciate his uh, approach and perspective. Gentlemen, it was good talking with you today, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Thanks, guys.